Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Welcome to the Ageless by Rescue podcast. I'm your host, Baha Etmanen. Today's show ventures into uncharted territories at the intersection of mental health, longevity, and groundbreaking therapies. Australia is the first country in the world to classify certain psychedelics as medicine, and I'm delighted to introduce you to a leading expert on this topic from the leading clinic specialising in this field. Scott Kelly is the founding psychologist at Goodmind Clinic. He's a clinical psychology registrar, somatic psychotherapist, and published author. Scott brings a unique blend of expertise to our conversation. With a background in music and specialised training in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, he's at the forefront of pioneering efforts to harness the potential of psychedelics for mental health. Scott's journey takes him from the realms of psychology to the stages of music, all whilst exploring the profound impact of psychedelics on mental health. We're about to embark on a transformative conversation as we explore the potential of psychedelic-assisted therapy and the connection to longevity and overall wellness. Stay tuned for a thought-provoking discussion that could reshape your perspective on what's possible for a fulfilling life at any stage as we explore the uncharted territories at the intersection of mental health, longevity, and groundbreaking therapies. Yep. So uh, in the Australian context, at least at the moment, we're talking about the use of psilocybin as a treatment for treatment-resistant depression uh, and MDMA as a treatment for PTSD. Those are the two substances and uh, indications that have been made legal since July. You know what I uh, I got confused is I thought it was an either-or administration, so I thought you could use psilocybin and for, uh, you know, lack of a better word, many people would know that as magic mushrooms or mushrooms. Yep. Yep. Um, so I thought you could, use, and MDMA is also known as ecstasy. Um, we're talking about therapeutic grades. And what I thought, obviously incorrectly, is that either drug could be administered for uh, persistent depression, uh, treatment-resistant uh, depression, uh, or PTSD. But you're saying it's the MDMA uh, MDMA gets used differently to psilocybin. That's right. Yeah. All righty. Um, and tell us about the change in Australian laws because I've been following this really, really carefully. I attended um, a conference, a, a, a presentation about it before it became legalized. And as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, it got knocked back and then very surprisingly got pushed through. Uh, as legislation. Yes, uh, that's true. I believe there are a number of submissions before it got through. Um, so the both the substances for those specific uh, indications have been taken from Schedule 9, which is basically the Australian Poisons uh, Schedule, into Schedule 8, which is more of a highly controlled medicine uh, schedule, but only to be uh, treated for those specific conditions and you have to Can have... I ask you, how did you become, I mean, uh, you're a psychotherapist and uh, you've been working, you're also a musician and yep. I, I love that this these two worlds are going to intersect in the conversation we're going to have. Um, but how did you become interested in psychedelic-assisted therapy? Well, I think um, through my training, it, it became apparent to me that a lot of the treatments that we have for mental health at the moment, although they're useful, um, they often come up short in terms of how effective they are for people. And there's always sections of the population where most of what we have just doesn't work at all. Um, so there was a real need for new and novel treatments, particularly for these conditions that can be so debilitating for people. Um, and so that was kind of an initial thing. And then as I did my uh, Hakomi training, which is a mindfulness-based body psychotherapy that I'm trained in, um, one of my trainers was talking about some of the research that was happening in the US and it sounded really exciting. Um, and it sounded like a 
the Hakomi method was a really good fit for uh, this particular way of working. So that got me more interested. And then I watched a couple of documentaries about that some of the research that's happening in Israel and in the US and in the UK um, and got more and more interested and uh, and then I and then I also found out that the you know there's music played basically all day on dosing day and that that's a huge part of the experience and with my background as a, a performing musician um, uh, it just as you say they that those two worlds really do intersect for me and I, I wanted to kind of go back to what you were saying about uh, psychotherapy and the treatment resistance that is acknowledged by uh, the professionals in the uh, area. And as a layperson, um, I often speak to people who are on uh, various medications or years and years and years of therapy. And there's the frustration um, that the breakthrough is so, so late to happen. And with the cost of ongoing therapy with the shortage of therapists available. I mean, we know that post-pandemic, there, there was a, a crisis point for access to adequate and correct uh, mental health uh, resources. Yeah. So I can see the interest for a government uh, and a professional body to really get together and say, okay, we are now at a crisis point here. Uh, we have a massive need for something that's going to be either adjacent to, instead of, or together um, with the traditional therapies. Um, otherwise, we're just not going to be able to help enough people. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's a reasonably labour-intensive therapy, so it you know it's two two therapists uh, for every client, um, but. I think the the real key thing for me is is it seems to be helping people who haven't been helped otherwise. Um, you know, some people will try antidepressants, works great for them, they feel better, that's all good. Um, some people go to therapy, they find it really helpful, that, and that's all good too. But there, you know, there's these sections of the population where it's not helpful, or as you say, it takes years and years, or um, there's side effects associated with the drugs that they're on. So uh, having this new option hopefully you will be able to bring help to people who really need it. Look, you're going to get a lot of pushback from um, ultra-conservative people, also anyone who's kind of grown up in the de generation of the war against drugs. And now we're saying we've got medical professionals, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists advocating for the use of what was previously considered illegal drugs. Uh, in therapies, and it'd be great for you to just explain the difference, and it will just tell us more about what psilocybin is and what MDMA is in the context of, um, you know, medicinal use. Yep, I, I think I think there's an interesting point there. I was listening to a podcast with a couple of researchers in the US uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about uh, that they were um, currently putting together a ballot for a. Uh, like a citizen ballot in California. I don't know the full details of it, but um, they were saying that a lot of the people who are supporting them are actually from conservative camps, um, particularly veterans, um, because, you know, a lot of veterans yeah. come back and and have a lot to deal with when they get back home, PTSD and reintegrating into the community. So there is actually broad support for, for this across the political spectrum, which I think is a really good thing. Australia is a world first though, right? We did it first. Tell me about that because that that's exciting and unexpected. Yes. There are um, special access programs in other countries, uh, so you can um, access the substances through these special access programs. But my understanding, and I'm not a complete expert in the area, but my understanding is that Australia was if not the first, then one of the first countries to actually reschedule it as a medicine. So we were talking about the uh, an explanation of what is psilocybin and what is MDMA in the medicinal. So as a drug, what are they? What do they do? Okay, yes. Um, so, I mean, a pharmacologist would give you a better answer than than I would here. Um, but uh, as you say, psilocybin is, is the kind of active component in uh, what normally gets called magic mushrooms. Um, in most of the research at the moment, it is actually a derived, uh, like pure psilocybin rather than the mushroom itself. 
um, and psilocybin falls into the classic hallucinogen uh, category of compounds. So um, it acts specifically on the serotonin 2A receptor in your brain. Um, and that's where I start kind of veering off what I actually can speak properly to. Um, and okay, so but I then... think the, the nuance that I, I guess I want to get to is that we're not talking about um, your friend getting you some magic mushrooms. We're talking about uh, controlled doses, uh, consistency in terms of how it's manufactured or derived, where it's from, purity, yes. uh, and exact dosing, correct? Yes, all of those things. Um, and having the dosing couched in prep therapy on the way in and integration on the way out um, and good screening at the very beginning to make sure that the people who are actually getting into the treatment are um, willing and able to engage with it. I think all of that is, is really important as well. So, um, yes, I understand. Uh, and we're going to talk about the protocol in detail because I think that's key. Um, and then let's talk about ecstasy. Uh, what is ecstasy uh, in, uh, or MDMA rather in the context of therapeutic treatment MDMA? Yeah, um, well, MDMA is... Um, it's not a classic hallucinogen. It's uh, an amphetamine. Um, so it works in the brain slightly differently. And experientially, my understanding is that it's a bit different as well. It's a shorter duration um, and it's a, a bit less immersive than, than psilocybin is. Uh, so it, often those sessions look a little bit more like normal therapy. There's more talking and um, things like that, whereas the psilocybin experience is really... Uh, as much as possible, you're encouraging the client to go inside and move towards this experience that's kind of unfolding within them. The the research that I was familiar with with the uh, for psilocybin was end of life treatment therapy, which I thought was so fascinating and and actually quite beautiful. So it was a um, research out of St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Yep. that I was aware of. So this is before the legalization of psilocybin treatment. Yep. And um, they were working with end-of-life patients uh, in palliative care to help them make peace, for lack of a better word, and uh, have some closure with their impending death. And so the therapists who were working with these patients using psilocybin were taking them on the journey, uh, and we'll talk about the protocol later, but um, the patients, the upshot was that, you know, after they had had this end-of-life psilocybin uh, journey, the patients that had had this experience had come to a really peaceful, uh, complete state about what was going to happen, and they had, I guess, in a way, reconciled a lot of their anxiety, trauma, uh, wishes, uh, for the, uh, the you know, what was going to c come ahead of them. And I thought that was so wonderful because we're not dismissing a single second of a human's life. We're saying right to the end, you're precious, that right to the end, you should be cared for, your mental health matters, your comfort, your peace of mind matters. And I, I, I found that really touching. And I think that made me really interested in this field Mm -hmm. And when I say really interested, I, in full disclosure, I've experienced psilocybin therapy illegally, but in a therapeutic, not a, as a recreational drug. So I tried the therapy for trauma and it was in a um, controlled environment, certainly not as controlled as the protocols dictate. And I have to say, I wish that it had been because I think it was so powerful. I, I actually think my treatment could have been even more uh, enhanced. But um, so I had a pre-session uh, consultation. Then I had the therapy, which lasts about eight hours. It's about six hours uh, when you're kind of on the uh, psilocybin and then another two hours kind of to taper off. And then I had post-treatment uh, integration, which was kind of talk therapy and integration to make sense of it. Yep. And it was 
it was profound. It was a, a one and done, I always say. Like it, literally that the topic that came up in that session, I've never had to revisit. And prior to that, it was years of really struggling with it. So to have it now with, as you were saying, it takes two therapists to be in the room, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. You have so much pre-work. You, Your journey itself is so controlled and carefully curated. And then the integration process itself is so uh, beautifully managed. I can only imagine how profound uh, the changes can be for patients who are lucky enough to have um, access to this therapy. Yeah, well, and um, the, I mean, the numbers coming out of the research at the moment are all very, very promising. Um, and like you, hearing the stories of people that have gone through this and had such profound experiences and big changes in their lives, that's part of what keeps me, you know, really interested in the area. Can you tell me about music and psilocybin journey? I think that that part of it is is really fascinating. And I guess it talks to the protocol. So perhaps you could start with the protocol, uh, the legal protocol, and certainly the protocol that you add, add, you work with at Good Mind, um, and then how music plays into that. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I guess it's important to say that they're not just one protocol. Different research teams do things differently, um, okay. and different businesses will do things differently as the private sector kind of gets on board. Um, but there are a few kind of key components, um, the first of which would be screening. Um, so you would want to make sure that someone is uh, able to engage with the therapy um, and there's a number of things that would kind of screen you out if you've, you've got um, like a bad heart condition or your health is, is not good generally, um, a family history of schizophrenia, uh, there's, there's a, a kind of a bunch of things that, that would screen you out. Um, and then once, once you've gotten past that point, um, the preparation process begins where you, as a, as a client, you would sit down with the therapists and you would talk about what, uh, what's coming, what the experience might be like, um, what you can expect uh, getting people like sometimes you feel a bit nauseous on on psilocybin, so getting people ready for the kind of physical stuff that might be going on on the day, um, and at the same time getting them ready for what the experience might be like, um, and helping them to become comfortable with that experience, and really encouraging them just to be open and and trusting of the experience as it unfolds on the day, um, and. Alongside that, you would learn some grounding techniques, maybe some breathing techniques or, or kind of grounding down through your body um, to help if things are getting a bit scary or they're getting a bit challenging, um, having ways of settling back into the experience from a, from a settled state uh, is important in preparation as well. Um, I would and definitely talking- advocate for that because it. It's a it's an experience, as you said, and it's not like a it's not talk therapy. It is an experience, and it's an experience that's going on in your mind, and it doesn't have a natural lever. You can't really make it stop. Once you're on the psilocybin, you are on the journey. Yeah, and and so I would say that that particular aspect of it is having, you know, really experienced. Uh, people in the room with you to support that journey and to help you pass, you know, the, the S-bends uh, of, of a, you know, six-hour journey is so fundamental and because you really don't have the skill set to do it. You don't have the experience. You don't have the skill set. Um, so I think that's a really interesting aspect of it. And I, you know, in my head, when I, after I had my psilocybin experience, I kept on thinking, what would my dad do if he was on this uh, treatment protocol? <laughs> like, uh, and the reason I, I thought about my dad is that he's had fibromyalgia, he's had PTSD, he's a, sure. and I always thought, God, I would love for him to have this treatment. And I always think, oh, what would dad do in the hallucinating phase? What would dad do when, like, you're really in it? Um, and I think that, you know, you, you do 
need and you do need someone in the room with you who knows what they're doing yeah absolutely yeah i think that's really important and talking ahead of time about what you anything that you might be scared of what you don't want to come up and what what we might be able to do if it does come up in order for you to be able to be with it in a way that it's not going to be overwhelming or freak you out so that's i think that's really fundamental in the in the prep phase can I ask you something with regards to that prep phase um, and also steering the direction of the experience? Um, when Again, I, I will go back to my experience and mine wasn't in the same protocols that we're discussing, loosely around the same protocols, but definitely not as detailed. Um, whatever came up, came up. So I wasn't in control of what experience and what particular issue uh, we were addressing. And so there were definitely moments of overwhelm, like because you're really going into the depths, uh, I would say the depths of your soul at some points of the experience. Yeah. But are you saying to me that, you know, with this, uh, the prep work and the um, framework that you can do uh, therapeutic assisted psychedelic experiences, you can actually set a very clear framework as to what is being treated on the day of treatment? Uh, no, I'm not saying that. Um, okay. Just just getting the person as ready as possible for whatever might come up on the day. And so but, when you say might come up, is does that mean that um, the psychotherapist and the psychiatrist who are in the room uh, are ready to deal with anything that comes up uh, and to support the patient on on that aspect of the journey, even if it hasn't come up before in talk therapy or during their treatment, uh, years of treatment? As much as possible, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So to be ready and <laughs> available to, to steer them. So sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, so so you take um, the medicine, uh, you enter into the state, the therapists are on hand to help guide and make you comfortable for the journey. You, you have some prep so you can understand what the physical uh, experience might be, what the emotional experience might be, what the mental experience might be. Um, and then could you talk us through how the drug is administered and then how it starts to work? Yeah. Um, so on dosing day, uh, you you would all you know, show up at the room and have a bit of a chat at the beginning and maybe just, you know, remember the grounding techniques that you talked about or, um, you know, some of those helpful things. Um, and then when the person is ready, um, the psilocybin comes in a little capsule um, so that would swallow that with some water. Um, and for half hour, 45 minutes to an hour after that, uh, they should be starting to feel the effects uh, of of the substance, um, and going back to the music. That so, when they ingest, you would start playing the the music playlist, which is designed to mirror the intensity of the drug experience. So it's sort of supportive and grounding in the beginning, and then um, as the drug effect comes on, it sort of uh, the music intensifies at the same time to try and help you open up into this expanded state. Um, and then you would be at, at the peak of the experience for an hour, a couple of hours, um, and and then kind of gently tapering off um, until, as you say, about the six-hour mark when normally people are, are kind of landed back on Earth. And can you tell me in a uh, therapeutic sense, are you lying down? Are you, um, so the experience that I had, I had um, an eye mask on, I was lying down, I was kind of cocooned. Yep. Yep. So the, 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 one of the kind of key principles of, of psychedelic assisted therapy is that the set and setting are really important. Um, so the, the, setting is what we're talking about now so making sure that the room is like a nice comfy environment a comforting environment more like somebody's lounge room than a hospital room um and yeah as you say the, the clients usually lying down on a bed they've got um, eye shades and and headphones to listen to the music the music's often usually also um coming through a speaker so that the therapists can hear 
um, the music along with with the client. Um, and yeah, plenty of cushions and you know rugs and stuff to make and it comfortable. And plenty of tissues. My goodness, <laughs> did I cry! I yeah. have never wept <laughs> like I did. I laughed. I also laughed a lot. I laughed. I cried. The depths of emotion was really intense. Really intense. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a good point. That it's. You know, it can be a big and challenging experience, but people also have these mystical experience where they 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 can experience you know big connection with the world and everyone around them. They can feel love. Um, there's all kinds of of experiences on the positive uh, end Definitely. of the spectrum, which I think are really very therapeutic as well. And also unexpected, I would say that um, I certainly I, I got some aha insights. Uh, from the experience that really formed the basis of new um, pathways for me, like a new way of uh, observing things and um, and approaching things. And I, I would never have accessed that alternative viewpoint had I not been in that, you know, state. So for me, it was definitely, you know, definitely I had that somatic release. It was very physical, very very emotional, but I yep. also got some great cerebral kind of downloads, I like to call them, where but they <laughs> stayed with me and, and and they changed the way I approach things for the better in my experience. Yeah, um, I'm I'm glad you had that outcome. That's that's really positive. And I, I, I think as you say, um I like how you, you're discussing the different kind of aspects of it because it, it can be a very embodied somatic process where you're feeling things you know in your guts and in your body um and often that doesn't make an awful lot of sense in the experience but that's where the the, the integration sessions come in you can kind of put some of that back together or or maybe it is a, a non a non-verbal process in itself it's just actually feeling that safety or that welcome or that um love in your body is the thing that that then allows you to change moving forward. I want to stay on the music for a little bit longer because sure. I, I find this just actually the most fascinating aspect of, of the assistant therapy. Um, how do you select the music list and is it in consultation with the patient or is there a prescribed best practice playlist? <laughs> um, there are a few playlists out there um, and it's a, a kind of, nascent field at the moment that's sort of part of what I'm really interested in is figuring out like how do we do this as as well as we can um and that's you know I think my skill set as a musician and as a, a therapist really come together well there um the music is uh chosen so that it that like the, a lot of the research talks about the music being both a supporter of the experience and a catalyst for the experience or um, you know, some of the, the client reports that I've read talk about it as the music being a guide or a co-journeyer um, on, on this unfolding experience. So um, people people in that state listen to music in a completely different way. Um, it's not, oh, it's not sure. about, yeah, it's not about liking or disliking. It, it's, it's more like, can I be open to what the music is bringing to me right now in this experience? And I think that that's a really fundamental thing. I had um, live music. I had drumming as part and singing as part right. of my experience. And I will say that, yes, it wasn't about liking it or not liking it, but sometimes during the experience where I didn't love the music, it would kind of, uh, it wasn't as, as seamless uh, as you're describing it because I think you're describing it as a kind of a co uh, pilot in the experience, whereas uh, so I'm interested in that curation element because if you, you know, say for example, the music is really heavily drum and bass or uh, classical, and you actually really don't like it, I think it would be kind of disruptive to the depth or the richness of your experience. Would I yeah. be right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Mendel Kalin's one of the key researchers in the area. He's a, a, a British guy 
and he found exactly that that um if 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 you don't resonate with the music or the music doesn't resonate with you then it can get in the way um so i mean hopefully that's something that you'd be able to discuss in preparation and and there's kind of a nuance there between oh i i i don't like this because it's pushing me into something that's challenging and i'm a bit scared i totally understand yeah versus I just hate this music and I really don't want to experience it, which, you know, a good therapist at that point would make a judgment call about, okay, maybe we'll make a change then and and shift to another track or something. And and I I do think, you know, eventually, hopefully we'll get to a point where you might have, you know, five, six, seven different playlists and be able to have a conversation with someone about like what their preferences are and match it uh, to to them a little bit. the challenges there is it's like six hours worth of music. It's a lot of music. Um, so there's likely going to be something in there that you don't love. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so you're playing DJ, psychologist, therapist. <laughs> yeah, I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of the lot of hats, so um, can you explain to me the role of the two therapists that are in the treatment room with the patient? Yep. Um, I mean, there's there's sort of a lot of layers to that. Um, the, the reason Slip behind having a psychiatrist, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the psychiatrist being in the room is uh, partly because they're, they're they're a medically trained professional. If something, you know, medical goes wrong, they're there and they can handle that. Um, they're also the prescriber of the the medicine, so the regulations say that the prescriber really does need to be there for the duration, which I think makes sense. Um, uh, whereas, uh, the psychologist, um, and, you know, depending upon the team, there could be psychotherapists involved or mental health nurses. Um, they bring more of their therapeutic skills and, uh, and I think it really does come right down to like, who are the two individual humans in the room with you and what skills do they bring and how do they work together um, I, I think all of that is really important. And I, I think that having a multi, multidisciplinary approach to, to that um, is, a, is a really good idea um, because, you know, we, we go through all this training and, and can get kind of siloed into one way of thinking, whereas if we've got lots of different people coming from lots of different perspectives, I think that makes the whole thing richer and um, more, you know, complex, nuanced understanding of what's going on. So we're talking about a long day with two expensive therapists in the room, yep. right? So this yep. is not, this is, uh, and it's not uh, covered by Medicare at this point. Is that correct? This is a private therapy option. Yes, that's right. And can you give me a ballpark of what a private therapeutic uh, treatment, uh, because, you know, you're talking about the pre-consultation the actual day of dosing and then the post integration what kind of investment is it and um, and then secondly i'm going to ask you how how do you get on the program because it's not for everyone yep um well the figures that get thrown around um at the moment are anywhere from 15 to $25,000 so it is very expensive at the moment which um I think that there's a, a real ethical edge around there. I mean, we want this treatment to be available to people who need it, not just people who, who can afford it. Um, and I think that ultimately funding this treatment is the answer to that in the, in the long term. I can understand why um, governments would be that, that like needing to see more evidence before they're willing to, to kind of really put money behind it. But ultimately, I think that that is where it will need to go. Um, And to speak to the second part of your question, I would be encouraging people to get in touch with their treating physicians, um, their psychiatrist or their GP. um, And yeah, there's still, the the field is still very new. So it's it's all still developing. And uh, I mean, as of right now, I don't know anyone, I don't know of any clinics that are actually open in Australia yet. But it's still on so, its way. So as a going back to the beginning, psilocybin is used for treatment-resistant depression. Correct. And so what constitutes treatment resistance? So that if you are going to your um, 
treating physician, whether it's your GP or your psychiatrist who is prescribing medication to you or you're under their treatment or of a therapist, how do you then say, okay, can we explore a new way of coming together on treating me and healing me? Um, I mean, from a definitions point of view, uh, the kind of generally accepted definition is if someone has tried two treatments, be that uh, an, an antidepressant or a course of therapy um, or some combination thereof, and they're still experiencing the symptoms, then that that would be then dubbed treatment-resistant depression. You know, the reason I became so interested in this whole area is, you know, obviously my show is called Ageless and I'm interested in longevity, cellular wellness and all the research and every single uh, piece of science that uh, that is related to aging and living well comes down to the reduction of stress and Mm -hmm. uh, managing uh, the human response to stress, um, the hormones that are um, compromised or overactive uh, in the face of chronic stress and anxiety. And so to hear about a therapy or a modality that can help reduce the most aging of um, scenarios, which is chronic stress, chronic anxiety, seems like a great um, ally in in your quest for longevity and wellness. And I guess my question to you then is, you know, how good uh, is psychedelic-assisted therapy in the treatment of chronic anxiety, chronic um, stress? Well, that's something that we're still finding out. I mean, the, the reason that uh, the two substances have been made legal for the two indications is because that's where the research is. Um, so there, I'm anticipating there's a, there's a whole bunch more research getting done at the moment into different indications. Uh, and as that research comes on board, I expect that what is available in terms of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy will get broader. Um, but it, there needs to be that kind of backing of research before we, we can treat it more broadly. So can we talk about MDMA now and the protocols for um, PTSD uh, and the use of MDMA uh, for that particular uh, condition? Yep, it's um, slightly less of my area. I kind of know a little more about psilocybin, but um, yep, what, what, what would you like to know? So I guess I would like to know is why are they using MDMA and not psilocybin? Uh, for uh, PTSD, why not a psychedelic, um, or, or is or is MDMA a psychedelic? I thought that when we were doing definitions, it wasn't really a it, 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 not tech, technically, yes. you know, um, but you still can have a, a psychedelic experience um, right. on MDMA. Um, uh, in in terms of the nitty gritty of why MDMA for PTSD, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I, I have read that there seems to be ways in which when you're on MDMA, when you're under the effects of MDMA, you um, can kind of be open to witnessing your trauma in a way that doesn't activate you quite so much. Um, and that... That witnessing can be very helpful in terms of working towards resolving the trauma. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what I've read. Can I ask you how do you envision the integration of psychedelic assisted therapy in, you know, normal medicine? It's one thing to legalize two medicines for the use of two very very specific mental health issues, but it's another thing for it to become adopted as, you know, a a mainstream or a well-funded or a well-accepted treatment protocol. Uh, Yeah, well, I think that's kind of the road that lays ahead. Um, I think that at the moment, finding, like, getting good clinicians, people with 
good skill sets for the work is really important, providing good training to clinicians so that they're skilled up and, and able to do this kind of work. Because as we've discussed, it is you know quite different to, to treatment as usual at the moment. Um, and as the body of research grows and um, and there's more kind of real world uh, experience, uh, you know, people who are getting this treatment in, in the community, then hopefully we'll be able to make more decisions about how this fits with the rest of treatment at large. We were talking, uh, we touched briefly on it, Sam, if you're okay with that, I'd like to go back to the integration phase of the psilocybin treatment. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, And something you raised earlier, which I think is really interesting, is that uh, psilocybin treatment was really gaining traction uh, for uh, treatment of resistant, treatment-resistant depression in veterans. And... um, so I'm curious as to what the so post treatment. So we talked a little bit about prep for the treatment, the actual yep. uh, dose day. What happens in the integration phase? How many um, sessions are typical or uh, desirable, and and why is this part of the therapy so so key in in the success of this therapy? Yeah, I, I think that it really is key um, because these experiences can be really big experiences and they can be challenging to make sense of um, and to I think another key part of the work for with integration is helping someone to take this big experience that they've had this new way of looking at themselves or the world uh, and be able to actually embed that in their everyday life so that it's not just some crazy thing that happened one day it becomes an experience where it was like, oh, well, actually from then I could be more open to my family or I could let go of that thing that I'd been holding on to for, for so long or I could, you know, change the way that I go about living in the world uh, in a meaningful way. So the work of integration would be getting together with, with the therapists and talking about what happened, um, talking through any bits that were challenging um, and you can even use a bit of music in the integration phase as well, like going actually kind of dipping your toe back in the water of that experience if if you can find where in the playlist it was. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so in terms of that, that, I mean, that's fascinating. That, would that be the two therapists who are witnessing the treatment journey would would be making notes and uh, and observing and um, for the post integration phase when yeah. the patient was most responsive or most emotive or uh, most triggered uh, during yeah. and then noting how it corresponds with the music or the time yeah. time stamp I guess of the of the treatment. Yeah, what was playing at those key points in time. Um, and in addition to talking about the challenging stuff, talking about all the really great stuff, what was, you know, these big extended, expanded states that you, may, you might get into, what, what, is, what was that like? How did you feel in your bones about that? What, what does that change? What does that change about you? What does it change about the world? Um, and just being, being able to provide someone a forum to, to kind of make sense and um, embody and really bed down this, this experience that they've had. In terms of how long, typically three to five sessions, but it would really depend um, on on the individual person. You know, if someone really wasn't kind of making, if, if someone was still sitting with the discomfort of it all, I think it would be important to keep going until you found some place of resolution. So when you say keep going, would you go back to having psilocybin, uh, another psilocybin uh, dosing day? Uh, or is is one enough and you would spend more time in the integration phase? I was kind of talking more about spending more time in the integration phase. Got it. Um, but depending upon the protocol, there might be another dosing day. That there's sort of different different thoughts about how to go about that. So at Good Mind, are you, 
it's a private practice. Um, are you seeing, um, you know, a good response from psychologists and psychiatrists in terms of uh, partnering with you to provide psychedelic-assisted therapy to their treatment-resistant patients? Is this, uh, you know, since the um, July uh, legislation, has have you been ready for and have you been surprised by the uptake? Yeah, we've definitely got lots of interest um, and... And you know we're taking inquiries at the moment. We we can't we're not set up to start treatment yet, but we're we're getting there. Um, we're excited about getting going as soon as we can. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been plenty of uh, plenty plenty of interest in the area. And going uh, back to the idea of um, you know the origins of uh, psychedelic uh, assisted therapies, um, I know that from what I've read is. Ketamine is another big drug that's used uh, in the US and in some states it has been legalised for the treatment yep. of uh, uh, treatment-resistant depression, PTSD yep. um, and trauma-related um, experiences. Is that something that's on the uh, agenda in Australia? Is ketamine um, being uh, worked through at this point? Yes, uh, there there are a couple of um, clinics off offering ketamine assisted therapy out there. Um, it's, it's legal slightly, here. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's in it's similar to psychedelic assisted therapy. It's quite tightly controlled, but it is available. Fantastic. And is there anything that you? Uh, I mean, we touched on this before. The affordability at the moment is is really a barrier to entry. Um, what happens now? So we've we've had the legalisation, which is, you know, took years uh, and so much research, global research and partnership with a lot of um, studies. Um, but what happens now to to bring it forward into? Uh, I, I don't I don't know how um, drugs get put onto a, a national you know prescription. I'm really curious, and I'm sure our readers are, how do we go down from $25,000 a treatment to something that, you know, could be afforded uh, by someone who desperately needs it? Yeah, um, it it is a very labour-intensive form of treatment. It's a very intensive form of treatment. You know, having two therapists in the room for every client, um, that's where a lot of the expense is coming from. Um, so really the only way I can see that becoming affordable for people is if it's subsidized in some way, be that, um, you know, through Medicare or through the health funds, deciding that that's something that they want to support. Um, that's, that's the way forward, I think. And of course, there'd be a limit on how many people are trained in this. And, um, so you know, scarcity of trained professionals, both on the psychiatric side and on the psychology side. You know, where do you learn this? I'm, I'm, I'm curious, where, where did you learn this? And where do the practicing psychiatrists that you partner with, where did they learn this? Um, well, there's, there's some training available here. There's some training available overseas. Um, I'm part of a clinical trial as well, and we received some training through that. So, um, there, there is some out there at the moment, but I do think that there needs to be more um, because, as you say, there is a, a, a real kind of chicken and egg problem at the moment where um, there's lots of lots of people interested in, you know, it being clients um, and we're kind of scrambling to catch up and, and have enough clinicians to, to meet that demand. Scott, to, to round things up, I, I want to touch on something that I'm always asked about, and that is the ethical considerations of psychedelic-assisted therapy. What do you think are the, um, or rather, what are the questions you get asked when it comes to the subject of ethics and this particular form of treatment? Yeah, I mean, that's a big gnarly question. Um, <laughs> I, I think the affordability thing is a, is a real ethical issue. Um, because yeah, as I say, we want we want it to be available for people who need it rather than just people who can afford it. Um, I think that that the other kind of big ethical area is 
the fact that when someone is under the influence of one of these substances, they're very vulnerable. Um, and it's very important to make sure that the clinicians who are there are well-trained and, and able to deal with whatever comes up um, and that there's good regulations around what's allowed and not allowed and um, and and that comes back to the preparation question as well, making sure that someone's prepared for um, all of all of the things that might come up. So uh, I think that that's that's an important area as well. And I guess the other question is, you know, the the source of the drug, um, you know, who has it, who gets it, where do you get it from? That would also feed into the uh, the conversation around ethics as well, right? Well, yes. I mean, uh, I'm, there's all kinds of regulations about the supply of of the substances and where they're housed, and uh, yeah, that's 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 a whole thing. Well, you've certainly taken on a, a massive new frontier, and um, I guess you know it, it's it's incredible. And everything, every new treatment and every new protocol has a genesis and a start. Um, so I think it would be fascinating to have this conversation with you in a couple of years' time where this treatment and uh, has entered, you know, the next phase, uh, so beyond becoming legalised for, for you to have some, uh, you know, a body of treatment experiences um, and success, hopefully success stories to talk about as well. I think um, it's such an exciting time in this aspect of yeah. therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm deeply grateful for, for your insights. And, um, you know, uh, it's exciting that Australia has taken this pioneering approach to psychedelic-assisted um, therapy. Yeah, thanks, Bar. It's good to chat. Thanks. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that. 